Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos, lead trader at watchbox.com. And today we're going to discuss value retention. It's a conversation that comes up quite often in my conversations with my customers and and with uh, my coworkers too at Watchbox. So uh, I think we should go in depth today. But first, as always, we have a customary wrist check. So on my wrist is a watch that I haven't seen uh, for a few months. Uh, I think it's been about four months or so. I sent this away for uh, for a service. Um, and this is my Panerai PAM380. Uh, this watch is special to me and means a lot to me because it is the very first Swiss watch I'd ever purchased. I bought it at Watch You Want back when Watchbox was called that. And uh, it was the first watch I'd ever spent any real money on. I think I paid around $4,000 for the watch. And uh, and yeah, it's been it's been in the collection ever since. I, I Well, that's not exactly true. I actually sold it to a friend with the condition that if and when it was time for him to sell the watch, he'd sell it back to me. So it lasted about two years in his possession. He sold it back to me. And uh, unfortunately, uh, when he did give it back to me, I didn't check the functions because even though it is only a time, it's a time only watch with a sub second. um, I didn't try to wind it because it is a manual wind. And uh, when I did so a day later or so, uh, I realized that the winding stem had was winding free from the movement uh and i sent it in to have it fixed and it turns out the uh the mainspring had it was broken so uh that was unfortunate but now the watch is back in my possession so the pam 380 is a 45 millimeter um i guess a base model you'd call it uh panerai radiomere so this is going to be a wire lug radiomere um it has a little onion crown with the uh, op logo on the crown as well as on the dial um, it, honestly, it's a, it's a perfect starter watch. I know a lot of people, when they think Panerai, they're thinking Luminor case with crown guards and, and whatnot. And that is the iconic model. And, and if you're going to be spending say more than 5,000, um, and you don't have a Panerai, it's going to be your first, certainly by a Luminor, but there's something to be said about these watches. Um, it's funny because Panerai came out with these Douay models as being, um, I guess, uh, dress watches or, or slimmer watches and they had lower water resistance and there's a lot of issues in, in that sense. But I mean, they've always had the, the, the radiomere line and the wire lug radiomeres were really the very first Panerai's ever made. Um, I've done YouTube videos and episodes about that. You can go check them out, but long story short, the very first Panerai wristwatches were modified uh, Rolex pocket watches and they looked just like today's wire lug radiomeres. So, um, yeah, great watch. I'm happy to have it back in the in my possession. I've ordered a few straps for the watch too. I'm going to wear it more often. And uh, yeah, it feels good. It's like an old friend back here with me. So, yep, that's on the wrist. And um, let's let's get right into it. So, if you haven't figured it out by now, um, there is no guest today. You're, you just have me, and uh, should be a, a a fairly brief podcasts in comparison to some of the others. I'm planning on going for about 30 minutes or so, but it might even be less. So value retention. Um, these days specifically, it's kind of like a uh, it's a, a, a hot button word, right? It, it's a word that um, some dealers throw around and, um, you know, some some 
prognosticators, I guess people, you know, online uh, people who don't sell watches, but who talk about them might get uppity about, about value retention or uh, some dealers, you know, might say, Hey, you know, don't invest in watches, which uh, in some, in some capacities I would agree. Um, but value retention is, is something that's becoming more and more, um, it, it's becoming a larger topic. I mean, I, I guess it always has been in terms of watch trading, but back in almost 10 years ago, say when I started, um, value retention meant, you know, you didn't lose half the money you put into the watch. Um, these days, value retention could make, could mean, you know, making a profit on the watch when you sell it, only having it for a few months. Um, so what do we talk about when we, what are we thinking about when we talking about um, when we are talking about value retention and, and how do we kind of break it down and, and what are the different ways that a watch can hold value? So, uh, well, I'd say initially, or at least when I started in this industry, if you can retain 20, 25% of the watch's value, that was, that was good money. That was a, that was a good transaction. You buy the watch, you sell it, you get 80% of your money back and, um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing fine. Right. And that was honestly, Rolex was that, was that way for most of their watches, even Submariners. If you bought a brand new Submariner, uh, from an AD, you would probably get a small discount. And then when you went to go sell it, you'd probably sell it for, uh, about 20% less than what you paid for that watch. Uh, that was a normal transaction. That was good value retention. Um, other brands, uh, let's throw one out there, like Yulis Nordin, right? Making cool watches, niche, niche market though, not a big name. If you bought that watch and even if you got a 20% discount, you might sell that watch and lose 25 or 30% of your value from the original retail value. And sometimes more than that, depending on the complication, the size of the watch and, and, you know, the, the price point was really important too. So if you spent 50 or $60,000 on a, on a small gold, Ely Snart end dress watch, um, you might lose 45% of what you put into that watch. So, uh, nowadays it, it's certainly not that case, not the case for most of these watches. Um, value retention nowadays means, you know, you buy a watch, you wear it for six months to a year and, and you get all, if not, you know, most of your money back, right? You, maybe you lose 5%, especially on a Rolex, right? So if you buy, well, at this point, if you buy a Rolex from an AD and you pay list, there are very few watches that would cost you anything, if not make you a large profit. Um, and, but if you go to, again, a brand like Elise Narden, um, even even that brand has uh, has benefited from this market, from the growth of the watch market in general, and and that's kind of how I want to talk about it because you know for a long time we thought all right well you know just people are just paying more so it was the same watch buyers competing and paying you know more money for the same watches whereas now I think we have a better view of things. It's really is more buyers coming into the market. So you have a much larger buyer pool fighting for the same inventory because production really hasn't changed over the last, say, five years uh, for any brand for the most part. Um, you know, they're making Rolex is still making roughly a million dollars, million watches a year. Maybe it was slightly less last year, but not enough to, to cause what we're seeing now. So, um, so yeah, this is, you know, the increase in demand across the board in pricing is for the most part going to be a result of many new buyers into the market. Um, I've said this before and I'll say it again. 
I'd say conservatively, there are three times as many watch buyers in the market. And I have an anecdote, which I've told many of my customers and I haven't put on the podcast yet, but I'll, I'll go ahead and lay it out there now. So, so if you're listening, you can tell me that uh, if I talk to you about this later and, and I started throwing out this story, you can say you've already heard it. So um, I have a good friend of mine makes himself a pretty decent living as a business owner makes, say he takes home half a million dollars a year, right? About four or five years ago, I come to his house for football game on Sunday and I'm wearing a Panerai. And uh, this is a guy who has a $150,000 boat, lives in a million dollar home, spends money on things. Um, but he asked me how much my watch cost. So I told him it was a $5,000 Panerai at that time, $5,000 watch. So his reaction was to look at me sideways and say, who the hell would spend $5,000 on a watch? Right. That was his reaction, say, for this is about, yeah, going back about 40 years ago. Um, fast forward to 2021, right? So that was 2017 when he said that. Now it's 2021. Um, he just purchased his second Rolex and he spent $30,000 on that watch. So the point of this story is to point out something that I'm seeing and a lot of other people are seeing. I think it's obvious at this point. That um, through the social media and through, you know, different avenues, you know, uh, um, uh, some of these auction results getting uh, mainstream media attention, um, we're seeing people who previously spent money on other things that they felt comfortable doing so, spending money on watches now. So again, this is a guy who certainly could afford it back four years ago. He could easily have afforded my watch and many others, um, but couldn't wrap his head around spending that kind of money on a watch. He didn't, he wasn't educated on what these watches are and, you know, which one to spend the money on and what type of value retention there would be nowadays with the rise of Instagram and YouTube and, you know, podcasts just like this. Uh, it's easy to find this type of information. You can educate yourself fairly quickly. And uh, now you can feel comfortable spending large chunks of your income on watches knowing that worst case scenario i can get out of it just like a boat right everyone knows um you know boats are uh what's what's the uh the phrase it's a hole in the water where you throw money in right but tons of boats are sold every year because people understand that there's an exposure right like if you buy your boat for x dollars you're going to be able to get you know y back that's just part of it right so nowadays many more people are comfortable spending money on watches in the same way um and even more so because of the hot market, right, which has been supercharged by the the whole COVID economy and and um, as well as people looking for alternative asset classes. You know, a lot of watches you can buy even at market price. You know, I have guys that I sold Rolexes to in January who are trading them back at a profit, you know, here in November, um, which is not something that I would say is, is sustainable, that portion um, in terms of value retention. But long term, the liquidity in the market has kind of established itself. Whereas the reason why you would buy that, you would spend $60,000 on a Ulysses Nardin and maybe get back twenty five or whatever it may be, is because not, not because the watch was just worthless when you bought it or that it, it didn't cost it a lot to manufacture or the R&D cost wasn't there. A lot of that stuff was there. Maybe the retail price was inflated, but not to that level. Um, the issue was liquidity. Right. So, um, you know, how many how many guys are looking to buy that watch pre-owned? You know, at that time, maybe there was 
you know, for that specific uh, Ulysses Narden, maybe there was 50 guys in the whole world who are who would be looking, who can afford to and be looking to buy that watch. And then how often are they going to be spending that money? Every few years. So what's the lead time on selling a watch like that? That's going to determine the liquidity, right? So if I can, if I buy the watch today, even at a tremendous price, right? Um, you know, say I, say I listed at 50% off the retail price. Um, you know, how long until one of the guys who actually understands the watch and would be willing to spend the money on, how long until he shows up to buy that watch? It might be two years. So now I'm tying up, say, $25,000 for two years. You know, that's, that's, that's a calculation that goes into uh, most people's minds, specifically the dealer market. Um, but, you know, liquidity is, is, a, is really, you know, a big deal. Cash flow and liquidity for dealers specifically. And a lot of times dealers are the ones going to be leading the, the, the market, right? I mean, buyers are the ones who are going to be determining the price points. But, you know, but when a dealer is com- comfortable buying and stocking a watch, without a, another buyer lined up, you know, that's going to give confidence to the market. And then you're going to have more of those guys, more people who can afford to it, can afford it, step up and, and per- make that purchase. So, um, you know, the liquidity factor has definitely increased. I mean, essentially with the amount of buyers that have entered the market. So say if there's three or five times as many buyers in the market as there were say 2015, um, the liquidity has increased by that amount, you would have to say, right? So, uh, so that that makes it easier to stock those stock those watches across the board. So there's less of these enormous hits. So for tying it back to value retention, even you know, Rolex, of course, stainless steel Rolex obviously has a level of value retention. And again, if you're buying them at retail, you're making money. But even if you buy them at market price. If you want to turn around and sell them, the margins, they, there's so many buyers for, the, for these watches that the margins have to be razor thin in order to compete as a dealer. So whereas in the past, maybe a dealer makes 25% gross margin, right? So you know, without taking into account shipping or credit card fees or any of that stuff, just how much did you pay, buy it for, how much you sell it for, say it was 25%. These days, maybe it's 5 to 10%. So it's, I mean, that's a tremendous cut, right? Just to be able to play in the market. To be able to compete, um, you might have to cut those margins, which means, which is great for for buyers in one sense, because if you buy, say you don't have a Rolex AD near you, or even if you did, you can't get your hands on a certain watch and you go and spend your money on whatever, a Pepsi. Say you spend $20,000 on a Jubilee Pepsi and you realize, I hate this thing. Well, the mistake doesn't cost you, you know, 30% of your money, even 20% of your money at this point. It might only cost you 5% which is in a lot of ways less than uh, in a lot of cases, less than a restocking fee would be for a return. You know, most restocking fees are 10 to 15%. So, um, you know, the, the value retention when it comes to those watches is tremendous, but even now to watches that are more esoteric watches that don't have larger um, pools of buyers. So you're finding, you know, Omega is definitely one that's benefited tremendously. Um, you know, Omegas used to be watches that you'd buy and you'd take a massive hit, even if you were, I mean, anything outside of a Speedmaster was, is going to need a serious margin for, for a lot of people. But at this point they're, they're trading. So guys that would only used to buy a dealers that I know that would only ever buy Rolex are now buying Omegas. Um, in some cases they're buying Breitlings. 
Um, you know, they're looking into, you know, every once in a while on a dealer channel, see a Grand Seiko pop up. These are guys that didn't know how to spell Grand Seiko five years ago. But now, because there's a market, because there's liquidity, because there's guys out there willing to buy them, these guys will dabble in it. And these are the guys who work on razor thin margins and who are, you know, cash flow is, is the name of the game here. So when those guys are getting into some of these other brands, um, that's that's great for the market. So the, so the downside that we're seeing is, uh, well, for some people, depending on how you look at it, is there's an increase in cost to get into the market. So guys who are used to buying some of these watches at 30, 40 or 50 percent off the retail, um, uh, uh, 30, 40% off, off the retail, then, um, you know, those are, those deals don't exist anymore, right? You, you can't buy these watches for, you know, half of their original retail. So you have to spend more to get into them again, Rolex specifically, you know, you might, you might've had to spend retail or maybe a thousand over to buy a Daytona, you know, 10 years ago. Nowadays you have to spend four times the retail price, but the flip side, and maybe the, the Daytona is a bad example because they're kind of always liquid. But the flip side of this is, say, like a gold sky dweller. If you bought a specifically a white gold sky dweller, or sorry, let me let me take another step back, a white gold Submariner. So a white gold Submariner used to be a dog of a watch, right? Thirty eight thousand dollars retail. They would we would buy them for uh, fifteen sixteen thousand dollars and resell them for twenty thousand bucks. But nowadays, you would you can spend the thirty eight thousand dollars on a white gold Submariner, and it it might not cost you a dime. You might make money trading that watch. I mean, it's it's tremendous. It's really ridiculous. Um, but it you know so there's the upside and the downside there, right? You have to spend more to get in, which might be prohibitive to some of those guys in the past who who had the twenty but don't have the forty to spend. Um, but the upside is that. There's the, the value retention is absolutely tremendous there. There's almost there's almost no way to make a mistake when it when it comes into this. And you know, the safety of the market will allow people to um to really, really uh you know experiment with their watch collecting. So I foresee this trend continuing. Um, you know, I I the COVID effect and the free money that was pumped into the market certainly does affect pricing. Um, but I don't think that it's the cause of this whole market. Um, and I don't really see anybody who can, I mean, I haven't seen any good cases that it is right. So while there certainly are going to be certain models that have spiked for one reason or the other and certain brands as well, that might cool off. I don't see a situation whereas you spend whatever, $25,000 on a watch and get back 10. I just don't see it happening. You know, the, the, unless production spikes and there are some things. So, for example, um, Mike Manjos just on his light, latest uh, market wrap was talking about Longa. He kind of got tough with them, right? He was—it's a brand that he loves, and uh, you know he was—he—he he definitely kind of—he uh, gave them some crap about some of their business practices. So, and these are things that can affect the individual market of a watch. So, something to look out for. So, Longa decided now that. If you want to buy any of their more desirable pieces now that they've identified and they realize that they have some desirable pieces, which really wasn't the case in the past, even though they made amazing watches, um, you have to buy an expensive or complicated model in order to qualify to get one of the models. So like if you want a Lumen, you got to buy whatever, uh, 1815 Chrono or something like this, right? One of the, That's the example, right? So you might have to buy a watch that you don't want 
in order to get a watch that you do want. So for them, maybe that's a way for them to make up the money on the, on the resale or, or a way to drive sales, right? Um, but what they're really doing is kind of kicking themselves in the foot because or in the ass because um, now the guys are buying the whatever it is, you know, fill in the blank. They're buying a model that they don't really love. That's immediately making it to the resale market because they want to recoup as much funds as they can. So say, and liquidity is somewhat high. So then they are, you know, they're getting, they're going to get back their 75 or 80% of their money. And then they're, they're qualifying for a watch that might be trading over retail anyways. So it's going to make it up. They're going to make up for that value there. And uh, they're flooding the market or I say flooding because they, there's really not that many longas that exist in, in general, but they're essentially flooding the market with other models and it cheapens the brand in general, right? So when people, when somebody's looking at a, they're looking up for pre-owned uh, longas and they see that, you know, whatever X model is, is listed for, you know, 30% below its retail price. And they might shy away from buying those watches because they feel like, all right, well, it's, you know, these, these watches, nobody wants them. They trade cheap. So it's not, it's not worth investing my money into it now. So they are kind of kicking themselves in the ass there uh, with this, with that, you know, model of, uh, excuse me, model of, uh, of sales. And hopefully they, they write their ship. But so there, there are certainly are going to be things like this that are going to affect the value retention of your watch. And so these are things to look out for. Um, you know, it also is the model relevant. You know, that's, that's a big deal, right? So not all Rolexes hold the same value. You know, and and you have to know kind of the differences between them, so you can't just buy willy nilly. So if you're if you're really concerned about uh, value retention, and you think, all right, as long as I buy a Rolex, I'll be fine. I'm not going to lose a dime because I can't afford it. Say that's your case, right? First of all, don't buy your watch. Don't buy a watch if you can't afford to really spend the money. That's not a good idea. But say that you're this person, and this is your scenario. I have guys, you know, who who've been offered. 44 millimeters uh, seed dweller, black dial seed dwellers, and they're hoping that they can buy it and either flip it for a profit or at least get their money out. Well, that's a watch that right now dealers are not paying full retail for. They're paying close, but it might cost you some money. And if you didn't know that going into it, you just see that, all right, well, Daytona's are 4X retail and, you know, Pepsi's are 2X retail. So this watch must be, well, you didn't do your research and you're going to get, you're going to have a, you know, a, a, uh, a rude awakening when it goes, when it's time to sell that watch. Um, because for number one, if you look at all the models of Rolexes that hold the most value, they're mostly going to be, well, 42 and below for sure. Right. But it's really going to be 40 millimeter watches. So you're talking GMTs, you're talking Daytonas. So those are the top two. Um, you're talking Submariners. And then if you slide up to the 42 <clears throat> sky dwellers, those are the ones that hold the most value across the board, right? Um, and then, you know, so it's going to be sport watches first, 40 millimeter sport watches, and then it's a sliding scale from there. So, uh, you know, not every watch from a hot brand is going to, you know, retain all its value. Even so, Audemars Piguet is another example. Uh, offshores do not hold the same value that regular Royal Oaks do, right? Um, that's just, that's a fact. And the reason being, it's a little bit larger. So you're seeing some of these, like uh, you can kind of use the the same conditions in certain brands to decide, decide well, is this watch going to be a tremendous seller or not? Well, AP, luckily, because they make so few watches, they only make about 
I think 40,000 watches a year. Um, they, you know, they don't really, it's easy for them to kind of control um, distribution <coughs> and spike the value of a watch. Whereas Rolex makes a million. So, you know, I don't really see a deep sea spiking, but for the same reason, the offshore and the deep sea both don't hold as much value as say a 41 millimeter Royal Oak or a 40 millimeter GMT. It's because of the size, right? You're basically cutting out almost an entire continent in terms of wrist size. So traditionally Asian buyers have smaller wrists and they, tra- they tend not to buy huge, heavy watches. So when you get above a 42, um, when you get above a 42, then uh, you're really, uh, you're, you're really, it's hit or miss in terms of value retention. Um, and a 44 is just almost out of the question in terms of, you know, uh, uh, a watch that's going to go well above its retail value. So, uh, you know, other brands, though, you're seeing um, really some a spike in value. So we mentioned Omega before. So Speedmasters right now are really, really hot. And this is a brand, you know, again, you know, Omega makes a tremendous amount of watches. They probably make almost as many watches as Rolex. And so, you know, you can really be left holding the bag when it turns, when it comes time to trade. But because people are looking at the most iconic models, there's a reason why the Samariner, the GMT, and the Daytona are really hot. It's because when you look at them, anybody can look at those watches and they can understand them. The design language is easy to understand. It's, it's a great watch. Speedmaster is really the same, the same thing here. People look at a Speedmaster. There's a reason why it's, it's the most popular model from their brand. It's because a new buyer looks at that watch and it just looks handsome, looks nice. It feels good on the wrist. It's not, over, it's not too big and it's also not overpriced for the most part, right? So uh, Speedmaster is another watch that is holding tremendous value. But if you look from the same brand, you look at Aquaterra, those are still trading you know, terribly below retail. Um, so again, you, know, you don't just look at a brand and say, all right, well, Speedmasters are hot, so I can buy any Omega, I'll be good to go. You need to make sure, uh, you know, go model by model and figure out, all right, well, what's, why is this watch you know, trading at you know, 50% above its retail? And then uh, why is this watch trading at you know, 50% below? A lot of times it's because of, uh, you know, the demand around that watch and, and the iconic nature, especially today. And, and I think that's something that will evolve as <clears throat> these new buyers move through the market and get a little bit more acclimated <clears throat> and understand things a little bit better. You're going to see value fluctuate through there. I foresee Grand Seiko, a lot of Grand Seiko's increasing in value. Um, I see the Rolexes and the AP starting to level out, maybe even deflating slightly. Um, though most new buyers come through Rolex. So it makes sense that Rolex would hold strong, but you know, a $40,000 stainless steel Daytona, I, I don't, I, I can't see that in perpetuity. That'd be hard to, to imagine. Um, but even brands like, like Panerai. So, you know, Panerai is a brand that's been up and down for the last decade or so. Um, the beginning of the decade, it, it kind of, it was booming. Um, people were paying tremendous amounts of money. They were drinking the Kool-Aid. The watches are super cool looking. You know, I mean, yeah, listen, you don't have to sell me on Panerai. I have many of them. Um, and, uh, but, you know, uh, taste change towards smaller watches. And then Panerai was left holding the bag. And any, any Panerai collectors, including myself, you know, took some big hits on their watches. Um, you know, things have started to level out. The brand did react to that. They did start making some smaller watches. But even still, you can look at older watches. And one thing I've always said is, if you want to get a Panerai that fits you, if you have a six and a half or seven inch wrist, kind of like mine, 
You can wear a 44 millimeter luminor. It's not a problem. Specifically, you need to look for manual wind movements because the case backs, which now with all current models, the case backs are much slimmer, but on those watches, they didn't, they did not need to have room for the rotors. So the case backs were flatter and they were a little bit slimmer. So they sit nicer on your wrist. So even though they still look large, they wear and feel smaller than the 44 millimeters, which is kind of like the perfect, <clears throat> that's the perfect scenario for a, a Panerai buyer. You want to watch that looks big, but doesn't feel like stupid on your wrist. You know, it doesn't feel like an Invicta. Um, so that's what I would recommend. But, um, you know, Panerai is hit and miss too. So, you know, if, if you're going to spend, you know, twenty-five or $30,000 on a complicated piece that they have, you know, they have these equations of time and things like this, these are not watches that hold value. Like, realistically, how many buyers are looking for a Panerai Luminor equation of time? Who knows how, how many people know how to read an equation of time or understand why it was made? You know, I barely do. And I sell these things. So, you know, it's it's hit or miss for each of these different models. But because of the spike in buyers in the market, there are a lot of Panerai's have, that have increased in value tremendously. I mean, I'd say... Four about four years ago, I was looking for a specific watch. It was called a Panerai 292. So it's very similar to my 380, the one I'm wearing today, the Luminor, or sorry, the uh, the Radiomir, but it's full ceramic. And it's a it's a it's a beautiful watch. I recommend that watch tremendously. So those those watches, yeah, probably about 2016, were trading online as low as thirty five hundred dollars. And stupidly, I didn't take advantage. I, you know, I didn't feel the heat and feel like, all right, you know, this is a tremendous deal. I need to, I need to go out and get this. And I should have, because now that watch is trading probably double that price point. Um, it is definitely model, model dependent. And some of the models tanked so greatly. A lot, a, a lot of these wire lug radiators tanked so hard around that time when people were moving away from these large watches, because <clears throat> if you're looking up a listing online, you would see that it was a 45 millimeter watch, even though it wore, it wore smaller than a, than a 44 Luminor, it would deter people, right? Cause who the hell wants to wear a 45 millimeter watch when realistically on my wrist, it wears closer to a 42. Um, but yeah, so you can see like there's an ebb and flow in a lot of different brands. Panerai is definitely one of them. So now you're seeing from the lower end core model pieces, uh, there is definitely a value retention. You can buy, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess now it's called the Panerai 1000, but it was the original triple zero. You can buy that watch for retail and you're going to get your money back. Like there's no issues here. Um, but you want to make sure that you're looking at the right models in terms of value retention, if that's something that you care about. All right. So, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of discussed this, you know, at Nazima now, and now we're about 30, 30 minutes in. Um, one other thing I'd like to discuss, and maybe I'll just touch on it here is, um, Vintage watches. So value retention in vintage watches, I think it's it's different, right? So there is there's definitely an uptick and a lot of a lot of this demand that you're seeing right now is driven by news of um vintage Rolexes and paddocks for that matter being sold at auction for tremendous pricing, like just ridiculous pricing. But those are really one-off pieces. Um, you know, if you're buying a vintage Rolex or you're spending like a, a serious amount of money, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a vintage watch. I'd say you need to be very, very careful because the fluctuations are ridiculous. Also, it's so it's so difficult to determine what's what when it comes to these things. There are some experts 
But if you ask them how they became experts or how they're determining these things, a lot of it is just kind of off touch and feel, right? Um, there's no real science to a lot of this stuff. And there's becoming more of that. There are good resources. There's a guy, um, I think I've talked about him before, Periscope on, on Instagram. He's got a website as well where he talks about vintage watches. The guy's a, a, an amazing researcher. He gets out of the bottom of these things. He attacks Panerai <laughs> uh, pretty often about some of their history and, and their marketing, which tends their their marketing and their true history of their, their or their marketing of their history and then their actual history tends not to line up very often. And he likes to expose that, which I kind of appreciate, even though I love Painter. I don't really love the company that much right now. Um, but so vintage watches, you want to be very, very careful. Um, it's hard to find comps, of course, especially if you're talking about things with specific types of patina and that's very old. Um, but one thing that I found uh, in dabbling into or getting into Vintage watches where I'm worried about losing a boatload of cash. Um, I'm looking at vintage Tag Warriors, vintage Breitlings, vintage Omegas. You can find them on eBay. You can find them from dealers like Watchbox. You're not going to have to spend a boatload of money. There's not a ton of incentive yet to really fake these things. So like, you know, repainting dials or whatever. And even if they are, if people are repainting dials and things, for the most part, if you're just getting like a, you know, a Tag Hoyer, whatever, or a Hoyer, you know, whatever it may be, a, a Monaco or, a, or you know, some 1970s piece that's super cool looking that you're going to spend whatever, four or $5,000 on. And, you, you know, you're at least getting, you know, more than half of that money back, right? Um, because there's not a ton of incentive to kind of mess with these things. So that's one way to go. If you're worried about value retention, but you want to learn about vintage watches, you want to do it by wa- buying them, that's where I would start. Look at vintage uh, Breitling. Sakura even, um, Tag Heuer, Heuer's, and, uh, and Omega's. Uh, that's, that's where I'd go. But um, All right. Well, uh, you know, ranted for, for 30, 35 minutes here. I appreciate you guys listening. If you're still listening, you're a champion. I love you. <clears throat> and um, uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me. Instagram's a great way to do it, at Mr. Thanos. You can just shoot me a DM. I tend to check those every day. Um, and otherwise, you know, subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. So Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, wherever. Subscribe to this podcast to get notifications uh, every Tuesday. We'll, we'll be releasing a new episode. Uh, I think the next few episodes are, are going to be all with a guest. And and uh, we have some pretty cool guests lined up. So some interesting stuff for you. Also, YouTube uh, Watchbox Studios is the best place for or watch content. There's no better place. We have the best content. And then Watchbox Reviews, which is Tim Masso's essential, it's his channel. He does just does all of his hands-on reviews and comparisons. Um, there really is no better place to find hands-on reviews or comparisons. I don't really care who you are. The closest, even the closest guy, and I'm not going to say his name because I'm sure you'll know, you already know who I'm talking about. The, the closest company to Tim's reviews might take a month just to um, uh, to edit it. And while it's good, it's not nearly as good as what Tim can do in five minutes with his camera. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So uh, so check out Watchbox Reviews, Watchbox uh, Studios. And, uh, and yeah, hit me up on Instagram if you have any questions or you want to buy or sell a watch. I'm always around for you. Otherwise, thanks for listening. See you next Tuesday. Adios.